Good to be with you. Excited about where we're going in this series that we've been in for the last few weeks. Um, very, very early in my ministry, I was incredibly blessed to have a spiritual mentor by the name of Owen Goff. Owen, I, I was young in ministry. I was young, period, green in life, but especially in ministry. Owen was at the time about where I am in life now, and he had grown up the son of a pastor. He had spent his career in the insurance industry. He had prayed and prayed for God to let him serve in full-time ministry, but never felt the leading and the calling of God until he was in his 50s. And he had a wealth of wisdom and experience that he shared with me on a regular basis. And I will never forget one day I was walking into a counseling session with a couple who was having some marital problems, and Owen pulled me aside, and he said this. He said, Mac, never forget when you talk to somebody about their marriage, there are three sides to every story. <laughs> There's his side, her side, and the truth. I have never forgotten those words of wisdom. And over the years, I have seen over and over and over again that a lot of times, Owen Goff was dead right. You know, it is true that a lot of times there are two sides to every story, but not always. There are those occasions where there is a very, very clear right and wrong or a true and a false. And in those moments, you know, there are those times in life where you have to choose a side. You, have, you can't just ride the fence always and kind of hem and haw our way around difficult conversations and situations. Jesus Christ, very early in his ministry, presented himself as an either or. It's what we would refer to as a line in the sand, if you will. In March of 1836, there were about 200 some odd people gathered and assembled inside the walls of the Mexican mission known as the Alamo. They were under the command, of course, of Colonel William Barrett Travis, and they were surrounded by staggering, outnumbering forces of Santa Ana and Mexico, more than 2,000 professional soldiers under the generalship, the dictatorship of Santa Ana. And there's a moment in the Alamo that has come down to us through history that we really can't confirm, nor can we really refute it, but it's a moment where Colonel Travis assembled everyone in the Alamo and very clearly explained their situation and said, you need to understand, if you stay, you're probably not going home. And as the story goes, Colonel Travis took his sword and very dramatically drew a line in the sand with his sword between everyone and himself. And reportedly said something to the effect of those willing to fight for the cause of freedom come over to me, at which point, Everyone in the Alamo, except one, crossed the line in the sand. Now, we, of course, know what happened to everyone who remained in the Alamo, but it's interesting 
that whether or not the event happened, and we all know, of course, in recent years, there's been a lot of pseudo-academic, revisionist, you know, deconstructionist history presented that calls all of the Alamo's history into a very, very cynical light. But whether the moment happened or not, that phrase, a line in the sand, has persisted. We, we use it to this day. If, if you ever reach a point where a decision has to be made, where a choice, a hard choice has to be made, we call that a line in the sand moment. Jesus Christ presented himself as a line in the sand person, a line in the sand moment for everyone who would ever hear the good news, the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now, this teaching series that we're in right now called Intro to Jesus, we're, we're, we're mining the gospel of John for insights and truth and reality to who Jesus is, what he did in his earthly life and ministry that what he intended for his original audience, but also what he intends for us who would come into contact with this gospel good news. And as I said, very early in his ministry, in John chapter three, Jesus has a clandestine meeting with one of Israel's ruling elite. These are the Pharisees, the Pharisees who were kind of that self-appointed watchdog group that, that provided leadership that provided everything to tell everybody how they should live. Very, very rules-oriented. The Pharisees, as a general rule, were scholars in the law of Moses. But on this particular night, Jesus has a conversation with one of the Pharisees. If you've got your Bibles, look in John chapter 3, verse 1, and I want to just set the context for where this conversation goes in the verses that follow in the book of John. John chapter three, verses one through three, and when we get to the highlighted words, read the words with me if you would. The Bible says, now there was a Pharisee, a man named Nicodemus. Say Nicodemus. We will alternate today between Nicodemus and Nicky, but that, that's who we're talking about. Nicodemus, who was a member of the Jewish ruling council. Now the Jewish ruling council, you had Pharisees, but then you had the Sanhedrin. The Sanhedrin was a group of 71 who provided not only religious scholarship and authority, but also legal and civic authority. Nicodemus was one of them. He came to Jesus at night and he said, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher who has come from God, for no one could perform the signs you are doing if God were not with him. And then watch this. Jesus replied, very truly, I tell you, no one can see the kingdom of God unless they are born again. No one can see the kingdom of God unless they are born again. So Nicodemus approaches Jesus in a way very, very respectfully. He uses the, the term rabbi. Rabbi was an esteemed position in this society. It was it was the, the spiritual teacher and leader of a community, of a synagogue where they gathered to worship. And Nicodemus says, you, you clearly are a teacher who has come from God. You, you perform these miraculous signs. It's interesting that the book of John doesn't use the word miracle. The book of John uses the word signs when Jesus performed certain miracles. Because 
John wants us to remember that Jesus did the miracles not for the sake of the miracles, but in order to validate his deity, in order to validate his authority as the Son of God. That's why Jesus did the miracles. Yes, he helped people. Yes, he healed people. But every single time, Jesus performed a miracle, something that, that suspended the laws of nature. It was a sign of who he is. And so Nicodemus seemingly is respectful, but he, he here goes down that, that good teacher rat hole. And, and you've probably heard people say this. Well, you know, I don't know about Jesus being the son of God, but he was a good teacher. Listen, we, we talked about this last week. I'm not going to spend a lot of time on it. But at this point, John the Baptist had already announced Jesus as the Lamb of God, the perfect Lamb of God, which meant he was the promised and prophesied Messiah, King of Israel. So that took just a good teacher off the table. You, you can't intelligently argue that Jesus was only a good teacher because he claimed to be the Son of God. He claimed to be God incarnate, God in the flesh. And if he's God in the flesh, and by the way, he is. If he's God in the flesh, he's a lot more than a good teacher. But that's where Nicodemus starts this conversation in kind of a, a very broad and general way. But then Jesus Jesus brings the broad and the general down to a very, very fine point and personal. He says, you cannot see the kingdom of God. You can't experience the kingdom of God unless you are born again. And here Jesus brings in and introduces us to a central teaching, a central tenet of his ministry, of, of the gospel itself. He, he's talking here about Kingdom and being born again. When we talk about the kingdom of God, it's a very, very straightforward but very, very profound thing. The kingdom of God is the reign and rule of God. The reign and the rule of God. Jesus says, I am initiating, bringing it in, the kingdom of God, but it's not yet consummated. It's not yet in its fullest expression and form. That's for another time. It is already here, but it is not yet fulfilled in all of its glory. So it's already, but not yet. That's the kingdom of God. But when he said born again, he makes it so incredibly personal. You know, as long as we live in this world that is marred and affected by sin, there will always be pockets of rebellion and resistance against the kingdom of God. That, that's, that's a part of life. That's illness and disease. That's death. That's ruptured relationships. That's selfishness. That All of those things that, that mar the image of God that he created the world to represent. There are these pockets until Jesus returns. But in the meantime, people created in the image of God are the only ones who can be born again. Born again is one of those phrases that is central to the Christian story, but I think a lot of times we don't really fully understand what it means. Here, here's what born again means. It means saved by grace through faith in 
Christ. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9 says that we are saved by grace, that undeserved, unmerited, unearnable favor of God. You, you can't do anything to earn it. That's how we come to forgiveness in Christ. But we, we appropriate that. The vehicle for that grace is faith. When, when a person chooses to trust Christ more than they trust themselves, to confess their sins, to repent from their sins, to change the way that they have been living, and now follow Jesus. That's what it means to be born again, and that's a personal thing. You can't be born again because your parents were Christians. You, you can't be born again because you joined this church or that church or because you get baptized. You were born again. I am born again only by the amazing grace of God through faith in Christ. That's, that's what it means to be saved. You see, Jesus did not come to this earth as only a good teacher or only an advocate for justice or only a, a spiritual guide. To be sure, he was all of those things. But he is and remains that line in the sand. And when Jesus introduces this concept to Nicodemus, Nicky kind of struggles with it. He, he started, he's, he's got, he doesn't really, he's, he's having trouble. And he says, he says to Jesus, how can, how can someone enter into their mother's womb again and be born again? Now, Nicodemus was not dumb. He, he wasn't playing stupid here. This was a highly educated man. But he was asking Jesus, what, what, do, you, what do you mean born again? And, and Jesus it's interesting, if you, as you read the text, Jesus kind of comes back on him. He goes, what do you mean, what do I mean? He goes, you're one of Israel's smart ones. You, you, should, you should know this. But see, Nicodemus did what we do all the time. The Pharisees had conflated the code of law for the covenant of love that it was intended to represent. You see, it's easy to check the boxes. It's easy to keep rules and regulations. It's really hard to engage in relationship. Would somebody help me preach? You know, I, I've thought about this so much as I was preparing this message. Have, how, many, how many husbands do we have in the room? Let me see a husband raise his hand. Okay. Has your, spouse, your wife ever said to you something along these lines? It's not that I want you to do the dishes. I want you to want to do the dishes. <laughs> Has any husband ever heard something like that at some point? Okay? And has any husband looked at his wife like she had three heads? You want me to want to do the dishes? You know what, you know what I'm talking about? And, and so... I, I can't tell you the number of times in our 32 years of wedded bliss that I've looked at Julie and said, could you just tell me what, what you're asking? <laughs> tell, me, tell me what you need. At which point she becomes more exasperated with me. I just wish you knew. <laughs> I've said, honey, so do I, so badly. You see, I, I, think, I think what Julie is getting at is kind of what God was always about with Israel and with us. It's, it's, not, 
The rules matter. Don't, don't misunderstand me because the rules are given as an expression of God's love just like everything else. But God wants us to want to honor him, to please him because he wants us to want him. And he's given us the rules, the law, if you will, to help us understand this is how you live in relationship with a perfect and holy God. See, Nicodemus, they, the Pharisees had so many rules about the rules, they'd forgotten the relationship. And that's what Jesus is getting at here. He says, I want you to understand, I'm not here to help you be a better person. I'm here to bring you from death to life, from light to, from darkness to light. That's, that's what I want for you. This is, this is not about you and self-help. You can get that at Barnes & Noble, Jesus told Nicodemus. He said, I want to give you life. I want you to have the life that is truly life, the life that is abundant, the life that is overflowing. Don't, don't you see that? And in John chapter 3, verse 16, Jesus goes to the bottom line. I almost call this sermon Instead of a line in the sand, the bottom line in the sand. But here's the bottom line. And again, I want you to read the highlighted words with me because they're so crucial. John chapter three, we're gonna start with verse 16. You ready? It says, for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world but to save the world through him. Let's read that again together, shall we? But to save the world through him. Thank you. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe stands condemned already because they have not believed in the name of God's one and only son. Bottom line. God loves you so much. Much. When it says God so loved the world, I don't, I don't know if you do this. My initial concept of that is I, I think of the globe. I think of a picture of like the earth from space. God loves the world. And, and that's true. But in this particular context, Jesus is saying God so loves every single person, He loves you by name. He knows the number of hairs on your head. He knows your soul because he dreamed you up before you were ever conceived in your mother's womb. That's how profoundly, perfectly, and unconditionally he loves you that he gave his only son so that whoever, whoever, anybody, even the person you're sitting next to right now. Tell the person sitting next to you, you're a whoever. Some of you didn't sound like you believed that. <laughs> whoever, whoever believes in him would not die but would have eternal life. That word life is so much more than just carbon-based humanity. It is that life that is truly life. That's what Jesus 
went to the cross and rose from the dead for, for you, for me, for whoever believes in him. That is the bottom line. That's what Jesus is communicating here. Look at how he continues in verse 19. He says to Nicodemus, this is the verdict. Light has come into the world. We saw that in John chapter one. But people love darkness instead of light because their deeds were evil. Everyone who does evil hates the light and will not come into the light for fear that their deeds will be exposed. Read it with me. But whoever lives by the truth comes into the light so that it may be seen plainly that what they have done has been done in the sight of God. Jesus is the light. And I think, well, actually, I, I know this from, from personal experience. I think I have in the past maybe tried to discount Jesus, maybe to discount his word because I knew I, I knew the sin, I knew the junk in my life that I didn't want exposed to the light. And, and I think that makes sense. I, I would suggest to you that most people, most people who question the existence of God, the validity of Jesus's authority, it's not because there's not enough evidence. I think most of the time it's because we don't want to bow the knee to Christ. We don't want to surrender to someone or something. We, we like to sit in the driver's seat, don't we? I do. I do. That's why I hold the remote control at home. <laughs> that was the laugh of recognition. Some of you know exactly what I'm talking about. But I've also noticed this in my life. Every single time I have submitted to Christ, every single time I have surrendered to his authority, I taste the life that is truly life. Every single time I taste the goodness of God in the land of the living. The Bible says that whoever places their trust in Christ, will never be humiliated. Isn't that, isn't that amazing? You know, it, it, I just think it's so fascinating, the things and the people that we put our trust in here in the world, the, the people that we advocate for, maybe social media or whatever. It, it doesn't matter who, where you come from or where you go, but at some point, somebody you advocate for or stand in their corner will let you down. They, they will disappoint you. But when you place your faith in Christ, you will never be embarrassed for that. Every single time you surrender to Christ, you're surrendering to someone who has already communicated he loves you perfectly and is willing to die for you to let you know how much he loves you. So if you surrender to that, you're actually surrendering to your own best interests. It's, it's a beautiful, now, don't misunderstand me. It is a surrender. I'm not, I'm not short-selling the submission part of this. Submission's hard. 
but it's worth it. It's worth it. It's worth it. It's worth it. You see, here in John chapter 3 in this nighttime clandestine meeting, Jesus is showing us not only what he did for us, God gave his only son, not only what he did in going to the cross for us, but he also tells us why he did it, because he loves us. And, and right here, he tells us how to respond. He says, whoever lives by the truth comes into the light. He's saying here, whoever comes over the line. Remember William Barrett Travis? Whoever willing to fight for the cause of freedom come over to me. And we don't know if Travis said that, but we know that Jesus did say, whoever lives by the truth. Whoever lives by the truth, whoever comes over to Christ, whoever crosses that line, lives in the light, lives in the freedom, over the line. Here's what over the line means. Here's what it looks like for us. Here's the response to this reality of the kingdom and born again. Over the line means, number one, trust him as Lord and Savior. Trust him as Lord, King of kings, Lord of lords, the director of your life personally, and your Savior, the one who redeems your sin, the one who forgives your sin, the one who restores you into a right relationship with Christ. That's a Savior. That's Jesus. That means that a person chooses to willingly step over the line in the sand, definitively to do that. Not to rely on religion or your parents' faith or your experience in this church or that church or that group or this group, but you choose in God's grace to respond to God's grace and you trust him as Lord and Savior. Number two, you worship him as Lord and Savior. I love to hear our congregation worship. I love it when I hear the voices. I'm usually sitting down here on the front row, and when I hear the voices behind me, that's when I realize we've checked our cool at the door. That's when I realize we are worshiping in spirit and in truth. We are singing. Whether we can make a beautiful noise or not, we're making a joyful noise. But it's not just here. It's worshiping him in everything that we do all week long. It's not adding to our to-do list. It's make, being more intentional about what we're already doing. When you get up and go to school tomorrow, you worship him in the way you go to school, the way you talk to people, the way you talk to your teachers, the way you study, the way you do homework. You worship him in everything. You worship him in the way that you go to work. You don't come cruising in at the last possible second, looking at your watch all day long so you can get out at the first available moment, you're worshiping God as you are working. Whatever you do, do it all to the glory of God. We worship him. And then number three is gonna sound like number two, but it's not. Number three, we honor him as Lord and Savior. As our Lord, our King, the one who directs our lives, and as our Savior, 
we honor him as the body of Christ, the church. We honor him in the way that we gather, when we come together, when we encourage each other. Listen, one of my favorite things about Sunday morning, which is my favorite time of the week, it is truly the best happy hour in town. My favorite thing is just seeing you, just seeing you here, and we love you online, but here in the room, not saying we love you more, per se, but I'm saying, just, just seeing the priority that this is. You walk in, I shake your hand, you shake my hand, maybe a little side hug, or whatever it is, it's that encouragement that, that, that fires me. I'm like, yeah, we're, we're going to keep going. We're going to keep doing this thing. We're going to keep reaching out, helping other people grow in their faith, helping other people come to faith. We're going to honor him. R.C. Sproul wrote this. He said, John Calvin said, it is the task of the church to make the invisible kingdom visible. And we do that by living in such a way that we bear witness to the reality of the kingship of Christ. We bear witness to the reality of the kingship of Christ in our jobs, our families, our schools, and even our checkbooks because God in Christ is king over every one of these spheres of life. We honor him as Lord and Savior. Now, when Jesus was drawing this line in the sand for Nikki and us, really what he was doing was not, not declaring something new per se. He was just explaining reality. Because the reality is God and Christ have always been Lord and Savior, have always been king, have always been sovereign. That's the reality. The question is, do I recognize that reality? Do I recognize that reality and respond to that reality? That's the question. You see, this was true before people ever showed up. God was God before he created us. He'll be God long after all of this is gone, the here and the now. That's reality. Here's what John wrote also. It's interesting that John, who wrote the gospel, the apostle, was also the author of the book of Revelation. God revealed to John the end times when he was in exile for his faith on the Isle of Patmos. Revelation chapter 11, verse 15. And I really, let's finish strong and read the highlighted words with me if you would. This is what Revelation says. It says, the world has now become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he will reign forever and ever. He will reign. That's what the Bible means when it says every knee will bow 
every tongue confess that Jesus is Lord. Every, everyone will recognize that reality at some point. The question is, do we live in that reality now or do we live denying that reality? Do we live stiff-arming or, or ignoring that reality? The sooner we come to recognize that reality, the sooner we're living in reality and the sooner we experience the life that is truly life. All who would fight for the cause of freedom, Jesus says, come over to me. Come over that line in the sand. I wanna ask you to bow your heads for a moment. But it's a sacred moment. If you're here today or maybe watching online and you have never chosen to trust Christ as your Lord and Savior, you've never personally and definitively responded to his grace initiative, then we wanna give you the opportunity to do that right now just to pray right where you're sitting, a prayer of beginning, a prayer of submitting to the life that is truly life. If that's you, then pray just something like this in your own words. Just say silently, Jesus, I need you. I acknowledge, I believe you are Lord and Savior. And so in this moment, I confess my sin to you. I confess it so that I can claim your forgiveness and your grace. And in exchange for your life, I will give you my life. And I will follow you from this moment forward. You are, from this moment forward, my Lord and my Savior. Jesus, thank you. I pray this prayer in your name. If you would, just remain with your heads bowed for another moment. For those of you who just prayed that prayer, whether you're here in the room or you're online, I want you to know that as a church, we wanna help. We wanna come alongside with what comes next because this is the beginning for you. This is just a starting place for you in this faith journey, this relationship with Jesus. If you would just... Let us know that. If you're online, you can let your online host know, hey, today was my day. If you're here in the room, when we dismiss in just a moment, there's a, an area out in the lobby to your right that is there, just the welcome center, where we would love to give you a, a gift. It's just a new believer's packet that has a Bible. It has a reading plan for how you begin this new relationship and just Take those first few steps of getting to know Jesus personally, relationally. Also, as our heads are bowed for another moment, if you just prayed that prayer, would you raise your hand? Just raise your hand and hold it up high. 
And understand that your hand in the air is just a spiritual, it's a physical representation of the spiritual commitment that you just made. And so as a family of faith with you, we celebrate that, we honor that with you. And our family tradition around here is you put your hands down as we're gonna put our hands together just to tell you welcome home. Welcome home.